volunteered and been leading in our worship service thus far <clears throat> this morning. Appreciate your um, service. <clears throat> I'm going to begin this morning a series of sermons on Solomon. And uh, uh, next Sunday, however, Dr. Boatman will be here. And then the following Sunday, Tracy will be back. And then I'll be here the last Sunday of the month. These guys haven't figured out how I saved the last Sunday for the potluck lunch for me. <clears throat> when they figure that out, I may be in trouble, but nevertheless, don't tell them. Uh, but anyway, support them, uh, please. I know they're encouraged. We're all uh, blessed, I think, by our experience with you folks. It's been a joy and an ongoing joy for us. And we do continue to pray uh, for our replacement that you have somebody here um, worthy of your needs. And um, <clears throat> so... Um, a series of sermons on Solomon, which means the next two weeks, I'll pick it up again uh, the last week of the month. King Solomon. Solomon was um, the child, actually, of the adulterous relationship between David and Bathsheba. He ruled for 40 years over Israel, her golden age, it's often referred to. Her boundaries exceeded any boundaries that Israel had ever acquired before, and I think since, from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, from Syria to the Red Sea. He had some massive building projects. He built one of the most powerful empires in the world of that day through marriages, political um, <clears throat> marriages that increased his power and and heavy taxation, which enabled the great building projects he engaged in. However, when he finished his kingship and turned it over to his successor, he left the nation bankrupt. And his successor said, I'm going to tax you even heavier than Solomon, and that split the kingdom into the northern and southern kingdoms. Well, <clears throat> his name, he was born in Jerusalem, Yerushalom. Jerusalem is a city of peace. I don't think it's ever known peace in its entire history. It's been completely destroyed three or four times. It's waged and experienced at least 16 to 20 different wars. But uh, the city of peace, Shalom, and Solomon's name echoes that word, that Hebrew term, Shalom, Solomon. Solomon conducted what I call the most extravagant social scientific experiment in the history. He sought to answer the philosophical question that philosophers have asked for the ages, what is the source of the good life? And he tested every major form of pleasure, wine, women, and song. And this provides the themes for my next four sermons. There are five of them. I begin with luxury today. Learning, next time, liquor, lust, and the Lord. Doesn't that sound clever? <clears throat> Luxury, learning, liquor, lust, and the Lord. Huge topics. And whenever Solomon tried anything, he tried it with all his might. I consider him exhibit, exhibit A of Augustine's beautiful statement, I... I would put it in the scripture if I had authorization to do so. Augustine said this, 
Thou hast created us for thyself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It's like he has created our hearts with a hole in it that can only be satisfied and filled with one thing. Every single culture in the entire world has a religion. Every culture has a religion. There seems to be innate in our hearts a crying out, a space that needs to be filled. And God has provided for it to be filled if we only open our eyes and accept. Ecclesiastes can, in some ways, I think, compare it to the Sermon on the Mount, which ends with the wise man and the foolish man, the wise man built on rock and the foolish man built on sand. Rains descended and floods and storms came on both of those houses, but only one of the two stood. And the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, could be summed up in a statement like this. I would sum it up like this. Don't wait until you're too old. Don't give you the best energies and the best years of your life in selfish pursuit. Don't squander the flower of your youth in selfish ambitions. Burn up the strong young years. And then in the twilight years when the sun begins to set, then turn to blow the smoke of your misspent life into the face of God. As... Solomon has said, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, but we'll get to that later. Well, he tried luxury. And as I said, when Solomon tried anything, he tried it with all his might. Now, I'm going to look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and then here are eight chapters from the book of Kings. Eight chapters filled with descriptions of his opulence, his wealth, his building projects. Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon writes, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women, singers, and a harem as well. The delights of a man's, the heart of a man, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom, First Kings reads, than all the other kings of the earth. Year after year, everyone who came bought articles of silver and gold and robes and weapons and spices and horses and mules. He, could, <clears throat> he was quite a salesman. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses. In the dedication of his temple, there were 142,000 animals that were sacrificed in that great temple. 
He offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. And the temple of Solomon, of course, was legendary. His navy, he put a navy on two seas. King Solomon built ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath in Edom, on the shore of the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. The Queen of Sheba came across the Saudi Arabian desert to Jerusalem. And when she got there, she said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth. You have far exceeded the report I heard. And she gave the king 120 talents of gold. That is the equivalent today of four and a half tons of gold. Large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Well, I've known a couple of rich Jews in my life, but Solomon was the richest Jew who ever lived. He fed some 10,000 at his dinner table. His gross national product was measured in $20 million. David left him $5 billion dollars of material to build the temple. David was not licensed to build the temple. He built fortress cities, baths, pools, gardens. His temple and palace were legends of opulence. But he couldn't buy back his youth. He couldn't buy life and health, and he couldn't buy happiness. He could summon the best psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors in the land, the social scientists and surgeons, but there are some things money cannot buy. Money can buy clothes, but not true beauty. An exotic vacation, but not the ability to relax and sleep. A big house, but not a happy family. It'll pay sports fees and equipment, but it won't buy a dad. It'll provide expensive gifts, but you can't buy love. Better homes and gardens lifestyle, but not a mother who has time and energy left to play games or read stories. It's not those who die with the most toys who win. It is those who loved and were loved by their family. Those who've known what it is to spend their lives for a purpose greater than themselves. Those who've known their God and look forward to an eternity with him. A few years ago, I attended a high school graduation in southern Illinois where I was ministering. And I was there because there were several kids from our church's youth group who were in that graduating high school class. The speaker for the graduation exercise was the head of the economics department at Southern Illinois University. His talk was kind of boring, but he said to those high school graduating seniors, this is what he said, the most important pursuit in life is the economic pursuit. 
Now, I wasn't surprised that the head of the economics department of a university would bang the drums for his own department, economics, but that's a lie. It's a lie. I've known, I had some kids in my own high school class whose ambition in life was the accumulation of goods. And some of them were really good at it. I mean, they gathered a lot of material things. And then the storms of life came. The winds blew and the floods came and beat upon their houses. And they looked around to see what they had accumulated that would sustain them in the storms of life, only to discover they had accumulated ashes. Some things money can't buy. Consumer psychology is what I call the big American lie. It's boomed out at us from every form of media that the good life is having things. The accumulation of goods. And what is frightening is our children can sing those jingles and recite those seductions even before they've learned to read. There is not one single philosophy. I have taught philosophy at the graduate school level in college. Not one single philosophy in the history of the world that maintains that the accumulation of things will bring the good life. Not one. And yet this is what we're told daily. The phone rings in the middle of the night. The Illinois patrolman at the other end says, we need you to come down to the station and identify what we think is your daughter's body. We think she was killed tonight in an automobile accident. All the accumulation of things in the world suddenly melt into nothing. Well, the lab report just came back, and the lab report is in and your cancer is malignant and it is aggressive. What can you buy then? Well, you can buy treatment, but there are some things that you cannot buy. The New Testament is clear. Wealth will not buy your way into the kingdom of God. Wealth is a dead end to discipleship. I've told my students at school over the years, money will pay for your tuition, but you cannot buy an education. It's the same way in the kingdom of God. Education is for sale. The price of the kingdom is surrender of the soul. It's storming the gates of paradise in prayer and sacrifice and time of time and money. It joins with family and the master in worship. It is the joy of work and toil. Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness of Judea, and he was really hungry. Satan showed up and said, why? You could turn these stones into bread, take care of your hunger, and the world's hunger too. You could do it. And Jesus knew that he could, but he didn't. I think what Satan did in that moment was I think he pulled back a curtain from before the mind and eyes of Jesus and forced him to look out on this teeming, starving masses of the world, men and women and children, 
reaching out their bony, skinny hands and crying out, Lord Jesus Christ, please give us bread. We'll, we'll hear about your God if you'll just give us bread. Well, one day on the seashore of Galilee, there was a hungry crowd. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus said, I can, I can feed you. He took some bread and fish and fed a vast multitude. <clears throat> and he was very tired. And he got into a boat and that night slept out in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. The next morning, the boat had drifted to another shore. But here's that same crowd that he fed the day before. Uh, what do you want? Well, Lord, how about breakfast? Jesus said, I'll give you breakfast. Your fathers were hungry in the wilderness, and they cried after God for bread. And God rained down manna from heaven, and they ate that bread, and they died. And Jesus launches this magnificent masterpiece of a sermon in the Gospel of John entitled, The Sermon on the Bread of Life. Your fathers ate that manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the bread of life. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will never die. And it made them sick at their stomachs and they turned and they began to leave. And it looked like his disciples were going to leave too. And he said, are you going to go? And they said, well, to whom can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Why didn't Jesus turn those stones into bread? Proved he could do it. Because that's not what he came in the world to do. He did not come into this world to provide a produce market for the free distribution of food. He came into this world to create a people, a church, that would create a people with the hearts for the hungry and the teeming, starving masses of the world and who would care for the poor and for the needy. Jesus does not oppose the possession of money and goods. He's not opposed to the accumulation of things. He is opposed to when things possess our hearts. Not the possession of things, but when they possess us. That's what he opposed. He gives us the parable of the shrewd steward. And at the conclusion of that, he says, you cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisee who loved money sneered, the New Testament says. And then he hit them with the story of the rich man and Lazarus and teach, taught them, and he, he's teaching us to care for the poor and the diseased. And our care for the poor and the diseased is the difference between heaven and hell. If you look at that story of the rich man and Lazarus. Robert Heilbrenner has written a description of what half of the world will go to bed tonight. How they'll go to bed, I mean. Hungry. Most of the world will go to bed tonight hungry. We won't. Most of us don't even know what it really feels. We say, oh, I'm starved. No. I don't think anybody here. You don't look to me like you've been close to starvation, <clears throat> nor have I. Half of the world is hungry. To copy the lifestyle of our one billion hungry neighbors, economist Robert Heilbrenner has <coughs> itemized the luxuries you and I would be without. Listen to what he says. 
We begin by invading the house of our imaginary American family to strip it of its furniture. Everything goes. Beds, chairs, tables, TV sets, lamps. We'll leave you a few old blankets, a kitchen table, a wooden chair. Along with the bureaus, go the clothes. Each member of the family may keep his own wardrobe, his oldest suit or dress, a shirt or blouse. The head of the house keeps one pair of shoes, none for wife and children. We move to the kitchen. The appliances have been taken out, so we turn to the cupboards. The box of matches may stay. I had a missionary give me a little box, an empty box of matches. She said, there was a time in Central Africa where that was the most treasured object in our home. We leave you a box of matches, a small bag of flour, some sugar and salt. A few moldy potatoes already in the garbage can must be hastily rescued. They will be tonight's meal. We leave you a handful of onions, a dish of dried beans. All the rest is removed. Meat, fresh vegetables, canned goods and crackers and candy. Oh, candy. The house is stripped, bathroom dismantled, running water shut off, electric wires taken out. Next, we take away the house. You move to the tool shed. Communications go next. Newspaper, magazines, books, and worst of all, literacy. One radio is permitted in your shantytown. Government services go. No postman or fireman. School is three miles away. The nearest clinic is ten miles away and has a midwife tending it. You could reach it by a bicycle, but you don't have a bicycle. You can pocket five dollars. I measured how long it takes me to read that. And in the time I've read that, 25 people, mostly children, have died of starvation. And about 200 babies have been born. Jesus' encountered with the rich young ruler in the New Testament indicates that he did not oppose the possession of things, but his words struck fire in the hearts of those who were possessed by things. There are two moments, two of the most pivotal points, I think, in the history of the world. I consider these two. Number one, the exodus. God freed the oppressed and impoverished people of Israel, but they turned around when they got to Palestine, and what did they do? They began oppressing their own people, exploiting and creating an impoverished culture, a low class. The consequence... God raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians who would come in to the land of promise and tear them from their fatherland and lead them captive for 70 years. All because they mistreated their own people. The second most important is the incarnation of our Lord. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, Consider the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though rich... Rich beyond our imagination. For your sake and my sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you and I might become rich. Our dream, rich beyond our wildest imagination. Now, you cannot spiritualize the poverty of Jesus. However hard you may try. Born in Bethlehem, I've been to Bethlehem, it's barely there. It is really small to this day. It's never been big. Least among the princes of Judah, the Bible says. 
Matthew 8.20, he did not have a place to lay his head. Matthew 17.27, he didn't have money to pay the temple tax. Matthew 27.57, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Jesus carried out his ministry in the backwaters of Galilee, but he threatened with damnation those who would not feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and tend the sick. When you and I want change, who do we go to to effect change? Well, we go to the powerful. We go... We go to those who have all the accruements of success in their lives. We contact the influential, the prestige. Jesus went to the slaves, the slums, the prostitutes, and the outcasts. How contrary to us. A few years ago, I went, uh, actually I took, I led a group of college students to Caracas, Venezuela. This was before the upheaval in Caracas and Venezuela. We went a Sunday morning to what they call the barrio, the really poor people. I mean, really poor. And uh, <clears throat> they had a government apartment there, but that's all they had. Somehow, they, uh, after the worship service, which I shall never forget, because they sang... And they celebrated in worship like I have, I think, never experienced before in my life. I looked in their cabinets, in their kitchens. There was nothing, nothing in their food cabinets. Somehow, they gave us all coffee. Really good South American coffee, incidentally, too. But those Caracas, Venezuelan Christians were rich in their hearts. They had an empty kitchen and empty cupboards, but their hearts were large, made large by something that money cannot buy. <clears throat> First John gives us the tests of Christian discipleship. First John, the little epistle of John, the beloved apostle. He gives uh, test number one, it's the theological test. Do you love God? Oh, yes, we love God. Test two, the moral test. Do you obey his commandments? Oh, yeah, we do everything in our power to do what he's asked us to do. Test number three, the social test. Do you love the brethren? Oh, yes, we, we love each other. John 3.17, John concludes that by saying, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes up his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? James Elliot, many years ago, before he died at the hands of the treacherous Aka Indians in South America, in a book entitled Through Gates of Splendor, wrote these words. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to have what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he can never lose. Jesus Christ Put it like this. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
What will you give in exchange for your soul? You know, I hope what I haven't demonstrated here, I hope that I didn't demonstrate just a death grip on the obvious when it comes to military or material goods. Some years ago, I preached a sermon entitled Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And I began to look at myself and I realized I wasn't doing much when it came to world hunger. I began supporting some organizations. Bread for the World was one. I looked at how the money was spent by them in government and discovered that they were really feeding poor and sent some money. I, I tried to set it up with our children to collect glass and tin cans and turn them in for money so that we could live better. No, money that we could give to the needy. Because when I thought about it, I thought how paltry little I personally am doing for the needy of the world. And I couldn't stand living with myself by not doing something. And I found that uh, we could support, uh, I think it was just a few dollars a month, it would provide an education and feed a kid in northern India in a school there. What can you do? Oh, there are opportunities all around us we can do. And I'm sure as a congregation, you're doing some significant works in, um, in what the Master has enjoined us to engage in, and that is helping, helping a needy world. It's there. It's right in front of us. We don't see it every day. If you've traveled in much at all in the third world, and some of you have, you know what that's like. I have. I've seen poverty, kids sleeping on cardboard boxes in Egypt. <clears throat> well, that's my message this morning, and uh, I hope it reaches hearts. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn.